Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. Well, welcome, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. It's so good uh, to see you all to worship together on this beautiful day. I'm particularly thankful for Ken, who lowered the AC a little bit earlier. So it's getting better. It's getting better. It had been 30 years since the empty tomb. A whole new generation of people were emerging in the early church, the first, second generation of Christians. Can you imagine what that might have been like? To figure out what it means to be the church now as this next generation of people receiving things from those who've gone before you, those who had depended on those first eyewitnesses' accounts. They're now dying, being killed. How do we move forward? I have friends who are on staff at a church in Waco, Texas. They uh, were a church plant that kind of emerged with these interesting dynamic of these young adults and college students a few decades ago. And I remember sitting with them as they were trying to figure out, okay, but what do we do now that there are children? <laughs> do we need to make a class? Do we need to make some policies? There are people who want to be members of our church. What does it mean? Should we figure out membership, they were asking? What are we doing? And as they were imagining what it meant to have a new generation of people in their community, they were asking questions like, what are the things we want to make sure we pass on? What are the essential things that we want to make sure we're holding on to? Imagine 30 or 40 years after that empty tomb. 30 or 40 years after that Easter Sunday. It's been just a week for us since Easter Sunday as we celebrated last week, but sometimes a week feels like 30 years. Maybe for you it's been 30 years since you first met Jesus. Maybe longer, maybe shorter. But perhaps we're asking, what are we doing again? <laughs> Today we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. And Mark is writing to this audience with this Gospel, the very first Gospel. And it would have been about 30 or 40 years after that first Easter Sunday. The people reading this gospel must have been asking those types of questions. What are we doing? What will we pass on? Maybe they were saying, maybe we should have something written down about what it is that we celebrate and believe. What do we want to hold on to? How do we make sure that we keep Jesus at the center rather than just a desire to keep together another religious institution or something like that? These are good questions to ask. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? What is the center? So for the next four weeks, we're going to look at each of 
the Gospels and the New Testament, an overview of each one to get us to see a little bit more about what it is these writers want us to know about Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. If you've ever seen a portrait of someone, the artist who paints that portrait pulls out features, makes sure certain features come forth, are hit with the lighting in a certain way so that things are understood. Each gospel writer gives us a portrait of Jesus. And each one is unique, with unique perspective, interest, focus. Each writer is not only documenting the stories that they've received, but also making statements about theology, about what we must know about Jesus. And I pray as we go together, we will see these portraits of Jesus emerge and help us remember what is it that we're doing around here? What is this essential thing that we have centered our lives around? Who is this Jesus? So today we begin with that earliest gospel. It's second in your New Testament, but it was the first one written, and it's the gospel of Mark. Mark was likely written between 78 and 7, or 68 and 73 AD, we think maybe 30-ish years after Christ's death and resurrection. Traditionally, um, it's been thought to be the work of a young Christian named John Mark. We meet John Mark in the book of Acts. His mother had a house church in Jerusalem. He traveled with Paul and Barnabas and likely was an assistant to Peter, possibly was a translator for Peter, as his first language was Greek and could have helped Peter with his Greek. Thus, he would have gotten the details of his narrative directly from Peter and Paul. That's a pretty good source. And scholars today have no really other candidate who they think might have written this book. So John Mark is a, is a really good guess. At the very least, we can tell from the text that the writer was a Greek-speaking early Christian who was likely writing to a community under persecution. Mark, throughout church history, um, has often been portrayed in art as a lion. So you see this picture up here. Um, this comes from the Book of Kells, which is a manuscript of uh, the Gospels from the year 800. And it was illuminated with these different images representing the different Gospels. So the one on the top right that is highlighted there is Mark. A little bit more about this book before we dive into the text. Mark writes with urgency. The word immediately is used 41 times. That's a lot of times. Mark is the action movie of the gospel. So I'm so grateful for all the connections that happened already in uh, our worship service. But the uh, superhero t-shirt helps us see kind of what we're getting into. Mark is this action, fast-paced, intense narrative. The first eight chapters describe who Jesus is. The final eight chapters describes how he will and does die. So I want to hit a few of the highlights of the book that will help us see Mark's perspective and get the overall emphasis that Mark is trying to make. And it all starts with the first verse. This is Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. That's the start of the book, and it's the title of Mark's writing, and it's designed here to get your attention. Now, you may say, that did not get my attention. 
at all, right? It just seems like a header or something. But in the ancient world, it would have. This language is charged. It is a stick of dynamite. Let's break it down, the beginning of the good news. We translate that good news, you could also say gospel. Gospel just means good news, but it also was a term that was used when a military victor would conquer someone and then come into town and say, good news, you have a new king. Good news! And you may not have felt that it was a good news if it was someone conquering you, but they would come in with the parade and declare it anyway. Mark is saying this is real good news. It is political language. Good news about Jesus. Jesus, a person, a Jewish name, comes from the name Joshua that we read in the Old Testament that means God helps or God saves. Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. One, a title that has deep reference to the Old Testament that means this long-awaited king Here's your new king, Jesus, the Messiah, and then the Son of God. Now, as people in church, we may get used to that language, Son of God, we hear it all the time. But in the Roman world, Son of God was a title used often to describe Caesar. In fact, Romans would say that Caesar himself could be called the Son of God. In fact, it was even imprinted on Roman coins, Caesar, Son of God. Mark is saying, Jesus is king. Which means decidedly that Caesar and everybody else is not. You see that this is a piece of dynamite, right? At the beginning, Jesus is Lord and nobody else is. This is the story of the true king, Mark is saying. In protest of the false kings of Rome, the false rulers in the political atmosphere and in the religious atmosphere of the day, it is saying to us now, Jesus is the true King. In the face of all our false rulers, whether they are political or cultural or even the kings of our own heart, Jesus is the true King. Welcome to the Gospel of Mark. As the story goes, Jesus is teaching and doing miracles. It jumps right into the action. No story about birth or childhood just gets after it. Jesus is teaching and healing in the synagogue, a place of religious leaders and faith. Jesus there is upending the structure of both political power and religious structure that preserved authority just for a few. He's flipping it all on its head. See, there have always been political leaders, cultural leaders, thought leaders, we like to say today, demanding allegiance of us. Mark wants us to know right from the beginning that Jesus stands up to every one of those to say these are counterfeit kings. There is only one worth following. And I need to hear that because I can be tempted to dream up, imagine a king for myself, even imagine a Jesus just the way I like him, who looks surprisingly like me, gets mad about the things I'm mad about, ignores the things that I ignore, who always just leaves me comfortable and unchallenged, and also unable to grow. Mark will not allow it. This is the true king. And so, we will get to know this king through dramatic 
action. So Jesus demonstrates his power. He's healing, he's teaching, he even forgives sins, something only God can do. And this bothers the religious leaders. They're frustrated. They're angered at Jesus for saying these types of things, for challenging them, for making them uncomfortable. So they say, Jesus, you must be an agent of Satan. Jesus has just been casting out demons, which seems like not something Satan or one of his agents would do. So Jesus says in Mark 3, 27, what I think provides a, a little key to all of what Mark is trying to do here, Jesus says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What a strange little verse. What Jesus is doing is teaching an allegory here for Mark's whole understanding of what Jesus is doing in the world. That Satan, the accuser, the enemy, has taken residence in the world and possesses all of humanity with his rule and his death. That all the world is bound up by the accuser in shame and violence. And Jesus says, I'm a stronger one. Here to bind up Satan and and free those who are trapped by him. And I will admit in 2023, in the Western world, when we talk about Satan, people get a little nervous. (laughs) What is this doing here? What do we do with this? But scripture continues to point to this idea of a force, powers and principalities of great evil. And it's not hard for us to see that there is great evil in the world. Great evil beyond what we would expect or imagine. Evil that would lead to things like genocide or holocaust. Shootings and violence. Great evil in the world. And Jesus says, yes, there is great evil, an enemy in the world. And the world has been bound up. But a stronger one has come. Jesus is the stronger one. There is a a popular action movie. It's old now, but you've seen it. Uh, Starring Liam Neeson, right? Uh, His daughter is captured, taken hostage. The uh, kidnappers call. And what does Liam Neeson say? I have a particular set of skills, right? And we unfold this incredible action movie of one setting someone free. Mark's an action movie. Of one stronger doing something about the evil, the violence, the shame, the imprisonment in the world. I have this tendency at my house of over-tightening baby bottles, okay? Brittany gets very frustrated with me for over-tightening. I found over-tightening means tightening something more than other people in the house can open it. And I have done this, I repent. But you've been there, right? Like when you need to open something and you just can't do it, you can't get the pickles open, you can't get the thing open. You've been there, we've all been there. Some of you are like, I always open the jars, okay. (laughs) This image that Mark is giving us is that we are trapped and bound and unable to get out, unable to do anything because a strong one has come and rules this world with death. A stronger one has come. 
who has a particular set of skills to open the jam, bind the one who does the jamming. This parable uh, prompts us to remember the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 49, 24 and 25. Can plunder be taken away from warriors? Can captives be rescued from the fierce? This is what the Lord says. Yes. Captives will be taken from warriors. Plunder retrieved from the fierce. I contend with those who contend with you. Your children I will save. Thus Mark illustrates Jesus' power. Power that is strong enough to stand against petty tyrants and their dominions, yes, but even the kingdom of Satan and death. It's illustrated in another place in Mark 5. I love it so much. Jesus is going with the disciples and they cross the sea into Gentile territory there. They find a man who's so overcome with evil, he's living among the tombs. He's injuring himself. He's unable to, to be in contact with anyone. People are frightened. When Jesus asks him what is his name, he says his name is Legion, a name for a large group of Roman soldiers who would occupy a territory because he is so afflicted. And the scripture says in Mark 5, 3 and 4, the man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore. Not even with chains. He had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. But Jesus, the stronger one, not using violence or force, gives permission and the demons flee from this man into a herd of pigs, which incidentally was a slang term that people had used at this time for Roman occupants. I don't know if that Mark meant to do that on purpose, but I think it's funny. They run off the edge of the cliff, and it says the man is healed, he's in his right mind, and he wants to follow Jesus. Jesus is the true king and the stronger one who conquers. No one could bind him. People were scared of him. He had lost his very identity in Jesus. Not with action movie violence like Katie illustrated so well, but with patience. Nonviolence. Peace sets him free. So Mark spends half the book on Jesus' power and might, and then things turn halfway through. See, the followers of Jesus assume what we might, that he will use his might and power to squash everything like a bug. And then all of them will just be comfortable and have cushy places in the administration. That he might be like all other kings who have ruled before with iron fists. But as we saw with his healing of this man, Jesus has a different approach. Jesus reveals that he's going to be a different kind of king. And I think he reveals that most clearly for Mark in Mark 10, 45. Our musicians did a beautiful job today. Thank you, Ryan and Anne, for your song selection. You saw some language that comes out of here that peppered throughout our singing. This is Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, you expect a king to be served, but instead Jesus says, no, I've come to serve and to give my life 
as a ransom for many. What does that mean? Ransom is here used only in the New Testament and also in the same account in Matthew. And the word means to buy freedom for a prisoner or a slave, like we would use when talking about a movie like Taken, to rescue someone kidnapped. This is what Jesus has been talking about when he says he will bind the strong man and plunder his house. But the way that he will rescue and deliver, unlike our Marvel superheroes, does not involve smashing the whole city all around. I'm like, who has their insurance policy? Instead, the victory this stronger one achieves comes through giving up his life, not in a militaristic win, but in nonviolent suffering as described in the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed by our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we were healed. See, Jesus is the true king and the stronger one who conquers through suffering. This is radical. And Jesus invites us, his followers, to join him in serving and going and doing and being, but not the way the world has done it, but in self-sacrifice and patience in love. As I tried to think about illustrations of this kind of love, I kept going back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And our Justice Book Club, Micah 6-8 Book Club, is currently reading The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. If you are interested in that, Barb Myers can tell you all about how you can be involved. It's a phenomenal book. And I thought I'd just read a passage about Dr. King from this book. Cone writes, Martin King's perspective on the cross was not derived from reading theological texts in graduate school. His view of the cross was shaped by reading of the Bible through the black religious experience and his personal suffering and his fight for justice. My personal trials have, he said, taught me the value of unmerited suffering. Suffering could create bitterness and hate, or one could seek to transform the suffering into creative force. When King thought about Jesus hanging on that shameful cross, he also saw God transform a tragic situation into something redemptive. Later, King would write a eulogy after four little girls were murdered at church in 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. And he writes, So in spite of the darkness of this hour, we must not despair. We must not become bitter nor must we harbor the desire to retaliate with violence. We must not lose faith in our white brothers. Somehow we must believe that the most misguided of them can learn to respect the dignity and worth of human personality. We may hear that passage and think, I don't know. And yet we read the scriptures and are faced with this same kind of dramatic, self-giving love. That's what Mark wants us to see. 
He focuses on Jesus' life and power, but then also His death. Only spends a few verses on the resurrection because it is in this self-sacrifice that it encapsulates this power of a different kind of king. We see it at the end in Mark 15, 39, after that account of the crucifixion. We find this verse. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. Here, a servant of the false king and the false kingdom, covered in his armor, used to watching and performing these terrible crucifixions, this centurion, so struck by the sacrifice of this true king that he announces what Mark announced way back in chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read one more quotation from Dr. King. Life has its peak and bleak and painful moments like ever-flowing waters of a river. Life has its moments of drought and its moments of flood like the ever-changing cycle of the season. Life has its soothing warmth of the summers and piercing chills of the winter, but through it all, God walks with us. Never forget that God is able to lift you from fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope and transform dark and desolate valleys into sunlit paths of inner peace. This is the message of the Gospel of Mark for these early Christians dealing with their own persecution from an empire that was scared of them. Buoyancy of hope transformed dark and desolate valleys into sunlit paths of inner peace. This is the story we're invited into, the thing that we center on. This is the answer of what is this and why are we doing it? This is our invitation into self-sacrifice and self-giving love, following Jesus, the Jesus we meet here. Scholar N.T. Wright says, taking up one's own cross and pursuing the upside-down greatness of humble service as demonstrated by Jesus himself, it confronts outsiders with Jesus. And it challenges the religious who are only as committed as their own convenience allows. It urges them to embrace the way of self-giving love as the Jesus-shaped pattern of true life. I want to live in the Jesus-shaped pattern. Jesus plunders the strong man, is the stronger man, rescues us from death and sin, from selfishness, from shame, and invites us to respond with service. Not as one might serve some kind of king who just demands our allegiance, but by following Jesus in love. We've seen the kingdoms of this world and they are far from beautiful. We have seen disappointment and exploitation. Every time I try to enthrone myself, I make a crummy king. (laughs) 
given in to selfishness and hypocrisy. But Jesus offers us a new vision that ends the cycle of revenge and violence that changes us, that changes the world. Jesus refuses to let us remain comfortable, stagnant, stuck, ingrown, but invites us to a better life, a life worth living, a life worth sacrificing for. This rescuer upsets us who are comfortable because his call's out of our comfort zone. But it's good. It is only this good news that can make a centurion turn his back on Caesar and announce who the true king is. Will you? As we end our time today, I'd like us to spend a few moments in quiet prayer, and I want to ask you a few questions that emerge from the trajectory of Mark's gospel. And the first is this, just take a moment and reflect, who is your king? Where do you put your allegiance? And does Christ have something to say about that? May we take that before the Lord. Next, we might ask, are we bound by anything? The true king has been revealed to us, and the true king sets us free. Is there anything you need to ask God to set you free from? Finally, we ask, God, are you calling us to respond? How? How might we respond to the true king, the stronger one who conquers through suffering? King Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance to look at your scriptures that You gave us the history of your people and your church, the witnesses of Christ, these portraits that help us see the Jesus that we love and serve. Perhaps we met Jesus 30 years ago. Perhaps we encountered Jesus 30 seconds ago for the first time. Regardless, God, may you challenge us shape us, call us out into what you have before us, because you are the one true king. Only you can deliver. Only you deliver through sacrifice. Only you show us the way of true, world-changing love. Help us to say yes to that. And like the centurion, may we confess truly this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.